We are kicking off episode 587 of the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear with a song. Savage Season is the name of the song. It comes from the band The Brad Depos 4. It's from their self-titled album from High Tide Recordings. They, of course, gave us permission to play their music here on the show. Make sure you check out The Brad Depos 4 when you're done listening to this episode of Monster Kid Radio and when you're done listening to the conversation that I'm having with Brian Clark about a kaiju film, we're going to get our Gamera on Gamera versus Gauss. I had a really good time recording with Brian. I've recorded with Brian in the past, but it's been way too long. So it was great to have him back on the show to talk about, well, this very special kaiju film. Special to him, and I think it's going to be special to me too in the long run. Either way, it was a great recording, and I had a great time with Brian. I hope that comes through in the conversation that you're about to hear. Of course, it wouldn't be an episode of Monster Kid Radio if not for all the great segments that we have coming in. We've got Kenny's look at Famous Monsters of Filmland, where he's going to talk about, well, Famous Monsters of Filmland. And we've got Mark Matsky's Beta Capsule Review. And I said something about this last time. I want to say it again. Mark is knocking it out of the park, and this is the 100th contribution that he's made to the show. 100 reviews of Ultraman and Kaiju goodness from Mark Matsky. Big shout out to Mark for that. It means a lot. Thank you for being part of the show. Thanks to Kenny as well. And of course, thanks to you. And thanks to Mike R, who sent in an email. He wrote in, Hey Derek, yesterday on the Monster Kid Movie Club, just before I had technical difficulties, an episode of One Step Beyond played for about one minute after the episode to know the end. When you restarted it, it was a different episode, so I had the replay loop on, and when the episode was over, I hoped to see the one which briefly played, and it was on. And not only that, five more unseen episodes followed. I'm so glad I stayed up to catch them, even though in my time zone that meant staying up until 2.15 a.m. Great selection. Mike, thank you. I appreciate the email. If you want to be cool like Mike, you can email me at monsterkidradio at gmail.com or you can call and leave us a voicemail. Of course, we do have a voicemail line. I'll go over that here in a second. Uh, and I'm not just riffing for time because I don't have it in front of me and I'm looking it up. Uh, the voicemail line is 360-524-2484. You can always call and leave us a voicemail or send us an audio file. Mike, thank you for writing in and thanks for watching the Monster Kid Movie Club. That's the Twitch stream, our Twitch channel, the twitch.tv slash monsterkidradio. We're always showing stuff there. I've got replay loops going of the big shows, the big show happening on Saturday. And hopefully this comes out in time for you to be able to make arrangements to make sure you join us for Frankenstein Day in the Twitch stream. And if you're a subscriber to the channel, you have an opportunity to win something. And... We have a Frankenstein giveaway lined up with Stuffed with Character. That's all happening later on, though. Let's get through this episode first. Let's get through the conversation with Brian, the Kenny's look at Famous Monsters as Filmland, and, of course, the 100th Beta Capsule Review with Mark Madsky coming up right now. Fill the night with horror. 
Blackula, Dracula soul brother, deadlier even than he. Blackula, he thirsts for your blood, he hungers for your soul, more horrifying than Dracula. The Black Avenger, Blackula, an American international release, rated PG, parental guidance suggested. I am Dr. Lee Cushing. Welcome to my Chamber of Horrors. Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors is a serialized monster rally novel in the tradition of the classic Universal and Hammer horror films. It's written by Stephen D. Sullivan, the award-winning author of White Zombie, Daikaiju Attack, Manos, The Hands of Fate, and the original chill role-playing game. My goal is to recreate the thrills of the monster versus monster films that we all love. We'll have vampires, werewolves, mummies, psychic twins, and scheming madmen. And that's just in the first storyline. Now you can get Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors and other monster stories sent directly to your email for as little as a dollar a month. For just two dollars, you'll get all the chapters in advance, plus bonus stories and other perks. Sign up now at CushingHorrors.com or visit SDSullivan.com for a Patreon link. I do hope you've enjoyed your visit. Please come again. And remember, the chamber is always waiting for its next victim. Live from the Land of Light in Nebula M78, home of the mighty Ultra Heroes, it's Monster Kid Radio's Beta Capsule Review. What defense can be mustered against a legion of undead shadow people? That's the question at the heart of Ultra 7, Episode 33, entitled, The Invading Dead. Captain Kiriyama and a TDF submarine detail are transporting highly classified, top-secret documents detailing the whereabouts of every Defense Force base in the world. Their mission is successful, at least initially, but word soon reaches them of the inexplicable appearance of zombie-like men stumbling into confrontations with the Ultra Guard. The zombies are brought back to TDF headquarters where, despite efforts to revive them, they expire. In a macabre twist, shadow figures issue from the corpses, steal the microfilm containing the TDF base locations, and transmit the information to a relay station in Tokyo. Dan becomes Ultra 7 to stop them, but with little effort they shrink him down small enough to be trapped under a drinking glass, and continue with their plan. The signal sent by the Shadow Men reaches a fleet of flying saucers which are primed to attack the TDF outposts. The Ultra Guard must rescue Dan and intercept the invasion if they hope to preserve the Terrestrial Defense Force. The Invading Dead is a supremely enjoyable episode of Ultra 7 due to a genuinely creepy scenario which is creatively shot and expertly paced under the directorial eye of Hajime Tsuburaya. Only later does one realize that there was no kaiju to speak of. The alien-controlled zombie shadow people are more than enough of a threat. And that's not all. The flying saucer leading the invasion comes uniquely equipped to apprehend Ultra 7. 
to the degree that it seems like the whole scheme was meant to lure our hero into alien clutches. It's an ominous sign that Seven is perceived as a threat to be eliminated, and it's a theme that will only gain momentum in the final third of this classic series. For Monster Kid Radio's Beta Capsule Review, this is Mark Matsky reporting. Seven wonders of the world rolled into one fantastic adventure. Frankenstein, born again to rule in terror, a monster unleashed to conquer all who stand in his destructive path. Frankenstein conquers the world. Stars Nick Adams as the American scientist versus Frankenstein, incarnate with the strength of a thousand men, a phenomenon such as never seen before. See Frankenstein Conquers the World, astounding on the giant screen, also on the same program. Tarzan, man of the jungle, with only a lion, a leopard, and a chimp as his army, can they conquer the hired killers of the dealer in death? Cy Weintraub presents Tarzan and the Valley of Gold. With Mike Henry and Nancy Kovac in Panavision and Color from American International Pictures. Nothing can stop it. The Blob. Starring Steve McQueen. It creeps. It crawls. It's slithery. It's slimy. The Blob. Plus Dinosaurus, both in shrieking color. Hello there, Monster Kid Radioheads. This is Kenny with a look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. Today we are back in Japan watching Kaiju again. For this segment, I am going to share the audio of the first part of my Twitch stream epic look at Kaiju in FM. In it, you will hear about the first and only mention of Gamera and Ultraman in Famous Monsters. After you have heard about it, you will want to see it. So make sure you click on the link in the show notes to watch the history of Kaiju in Famous Monsters. Now, let's go back to 2020 and hear about Famous Firsts. Konnichiwa, kaiju fans. This is Kenny from Monster Kid Radio with a look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. We are going to see the history of kaiju and famous monsters in this multi-part series. Let's start with Famous Firsts. The first mention of a monster imported from Japan was this photo from Half Human, found in Famous Monsters No. 1 from February of 1958. Not quite a kaiju, but close. In issue 2, from September of 1958, we find the first mention of a kaiju film in an article about future monster movies. Have you noticed that creatures are getting more colorful than ever? How about those starfish-shaped things from the stars with the big eye in their middle? The Mysterians. It seems they were confusing a warning from space with the Mysterians in this case. Our old friend Godzilla was first mentioned in the same article in this list of films from 1956. In 1956, there were 40 science fiction and fantastic picks, many of them featuring monsters such as Blaisdell's Beast with a Million Eyes, Marla English as the seaweedy she-creature, Bud Westmore's Mole People with their warty heads and knobby hands, the goonish Gamma People, the monstrous Godzilla from Japan, the three-eyed mutant in The Day the World Ended, 
and the oozing horror that was the creeping unknown. In FM3, we see the first mention of an upcoming Godzilla film in this list of future flicks, Godzilla Raids Again. In FM6, from February of 1960, we see the first giant kaiju photo published. This look at the robot from the Mysterians. It's the great aunt of Robbie the Robot. Gee, Annie, what a long nose you have. By Jimmy, it looks like the nozzle of Schnozzle. In the same issue, we see our first Japanese FM fan. Tokyo Trio, father Tetsuyano, son Makoto, and daughter Kumiko all enjoy FM in Japan, the country that gave us Godzilla, Giganus, Rodan, the H-Man, the Mysterians, and the return of Madame Butterfly. The first picture of the Big G didn't come till FM9 from November of 1960. Here's a monster who's well-trained. You guessed it, Godzilla. The first and only looks at Ultraman and Gamera was in FM128 from September of 1976. When Japanese monsters fight, it's a bite to the finish because they just keep on nipping at each other. You too will find plenty to sink your teeth into in this exciting new issue. What was the first movie to receive article-length coverage? We'll see that next segment. For MKR, this is Kenny saying sayonara. The Mysterium! The Mysterium! The Mysterium! You are now inside a flying saucer. Our destination, the planet Earth. We are the Mysterium. Our race is old, dying, our planet dead. Only you of Earth, you and your women, can give us life. And what we want, we take. Swooping down from outer space, blowing up from the lower depths, the Mysterians, creatures who knew the uttermost secrets of the atom before our planet was born. Love-hungry spacemen come to seize our women that their dying race may live. It started in the east. Soon it swept the west. The all-out horror of interplanetary war. See giant robots no earthly weapon can destroy rip a path of destruction across the land. See the forces of nature harnessed to the invader's will wipe entire cities from the face of the world. See the earth itself crumble beneath your feet. The Mysterians. Threatening our civilization with weapons beyond the belief of modern science. Flying ray guns that blast everything before them. An impregnable fortress that hides in the earth. Gamma rays that melt the heaviest armament. As men and machines disintegrate before your eyes. The Mysterians. What power can stop their ruthless advance? See the blazing holocaust of an earth gone mad. See on the giant screen in flaming color. The Mysterians. The fantastic fire monsters raging out of the flaming bowels of hell. Mighty Gigantus crushing whole cities in its wrath. And deadly Angurus screaming its challenge of mortal combat. 
the battle of the ages. Scenes and sights and sensations beyond anything the screen has ever shown. I am Dracula, and I bid you welcome to the podcast devoted to the classic, and sometimes not so classic, genre cinema of yesteryear. And I offer you this warning. Sometimes Derek and his guests get excited, and they may spoil a movie or two. You know how excited monster kids can get sometimes. If Monster Kid Radio spoils a movie for you, do not come whining to me. I cannot stand whines. Listeners, I don't talk about kaiju enough. I feel like kaiju is one of those subgenres, you know, the Godzillas, the Gammers, and all the rest. It's one of those subgenres that I could rabbit hole and deep dive and just have a good old time talking about this stuff. There are so many podcasts out there that focus specifically on giant monsters, on kaiju, that I don't know if I could do a good enough job on my own. Sure, we get the beta capsule review here on the show from Mark Matsky, and that's amazing, and I'm in awe of what he's able to bring to the table. And when a guest wants to discuss a kaiju film on the show, I get a little like, uh, well, I I want to, but I don't have the experience, I don't have the knowledge of these films as a lot of people do. Fortunately, I've got incredible friends that come onto the show who are willing to hold my hand and guide me through the kaiju infested waters. That's a really, really weird metaphor. Uh, (laughs) All of this is to say I've got Brian Clark here on the show to talk with us about a gamma film. Welcome to the show, sir. Hey, thank you for having me back. I'm, I'm stoked to be here again. It's been a while. We had a lot of, it's been a long time. Had a lot of fun the last time. So, been quite some time and a lot's been going on for you in that me wow you are writing for scream magazine man yes yeah that's been no big change since the last time in fact the uh, issue that just came out number 74 i have an interview with john carpenter holy cow how cool is that yeah that was a thrill and he was super nice too yeah you hear so many stories about him being grumpy at conventions or whatever so i was a little nervous i'm you know kind of a fledgling reporter <laughs> uh cub reporter for the daily planet kind of thing and uh approaching you know one of the great legends of horror and man he could not have been nicer he there were some technical snafus during the the interview process and the recording got screwed up a little bit and uh he was just patient and funny and friendly and warm and he was great oh wow that's so amazing i've heard a few interviews with him on podcasts over the years and obviously read a lot too i'm a big fan of what he does i would be lying if i didn't say that what john carpenter did during the 80s and 90s really influenced me as a horror film fan and your article tackles a movie that i feel like didn't get a lot of love when it first came out we talked about john carpenter's vampires with him how cool man i I, i'm just trying to imagine you sitting there part of you just buzzing and freaking out that you're talking to this this horror movie master <laughs> while trying to get the job done and do the interview and put together uh, such a great piece. So congratulations, man. Thank you. Thank you. 
Now, is writing for Screen Magazine something that is going to be on the regular for you? Yeah, yeah. I've been doing it uh, pretty regularly for a little over two years now. They publish every other month, so there's only five issues a year. I wish it could be the thing that pays my bills, but <laughs> that's not going to be the case. But uh, if I didn't give them another piece for the next year and a half, they could put something of mine in every issue and not run out of material. They've got a lot of stuff in the can for me already. Uh, right now I'm working on a piece on the blob. Ooh, and I have which one? The remake oh, no, or the, no, the, the original? The original. Yeah. Yeah. That I uh Oh, nice. Uh, recently I've done a few more contemporary movies like Vampires. And I think that's the newest movie I've written about for them. Early my first piece was on Son of Kong. And I, I don't know, I guess the, uh, the editor gave me a list of movies that he wanted covered and said, here, pick from these. And I guess I must have just kind of got myself pegged the classic horror guy because most of the stuff I've written about for them has been more MKR adjacent type stuff. So I've done pieces on like uh, a couple of the Mummy sequels. I've done one on Return of the Vampire, uh, Blackula, all, all kinds of classic stuff. That's fantastic. Congratulations. And listeners, I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes to Scream Magazine. Uh, I know there are a couple of magazines that use that word as its title, but this is Scream spelled the traditional way. Magazine, it's called, this build is the world's number one horror magazine. Uh, I will, again, make sure there's a link in the show notes to go check it out and support Brian and tell him that Monster Kid Radio sent you. Especially if we're getting some good Monster Kid type coverage in that magazine. I, I love when contemporary horror outlets celebrate the classics and do it with respect and knowledge and real love. And that's the vibe that I get from what you do, from your writing. So thank you for representing. Yeah, that, thank you for the, the kind words. And they, they do a good job of, of representing all, all eras. And uh, Rich, the editor, is a big fan of the classics. So he, he makes sure there's representation and like you said respectful representation excellent well we could talk about john carpenter's vampires which i haven't seen in a long time and even reading your piece i'm like i, I really need to go back and and rewatch this because i remember really loving this movie so i need to go back and rewatch it later because right now we've got some other things we gotta do yes we do we've got a giant monster movie to talk about but I'm changing things up. I'm going back to how we used to do it. How do you feel about a round of the classic five before we get started? Oh, you're springing on me right out of the gate. <laughs> the <laughs> classic five. Let's get into it. I'm totally ready to completely forget everything I know about every movie I've ever seen as soon as you ask me the first question. <laughs> Editing makes us both sound like what we know we're talking about. So <laughs> well, that's good. That's good. All right, here we go for the Classic Five. It is a game that we play on Monster Kid Radio. I have a literal deck of cards. Each one of these cards says this or that. Which movie do you prefer style question on them? There are no wrong answers. Just a way to get Monster Kids talking about their favorite topic, monster movies. Are you ready to play a round of the Classic Five? Yes, I am. All right, here we go. Question number one, card number one. Ooh, it's from the Hammer deck. Mm. Which movie do you prefer, the Gorgon or the Reptile? Uh, I've got to, I'm sorry, Joshua Kennedy, I've got to go with the reptile. In this remote little country village, the mortal remains of a man are laid to rest. Who is it this time, Peter? It's Mr. Spaulding. They found him this morning. Just like the others. Just like the others, he died in the night. Get away from there! Get away! Shh. Suddenly, 
violently, horribly. This is an evil place. Corrupt and evil. Evil, as venomous as a snake, turns the quiet of this village into a writhing hell on earth. Where every man fears for his safety and his sanity. Where everyone is suspect. Do you mean they died by some sort of magic? Some witchcraft? For the first time in my life, I'm frightened. Everyone is frightened. The doctor who'd lived his life in the East. This man who could be the next victim. This woman and this girl are frightened, hypnotized by the crawling, creeping spell of the reptile. Stop! Pack your things, we're leaving. No, Dr. Franklin. You are not leaving. I could kill you. Possibly. But you could never be free then, could you? And what would happen to little Anna then? Trapped like animals in a cage and getting closer and closer suffocating them with terror the reptile the Gorgon, there's some great stuff in there it's got patrick troughton which i'm always a fan because i'm a huge doctor who guy um but yeah the reptile has got more atmosphere i think it's got jacqueline pierce which big thumbs up there um yeah I, <laughs> the reptile no wrong answers man no wrong answers uh, and I love the reptile. I love the monster design in that. I, I like the monster of the Gorgon too, but yeah. the reptile monster design, man, it's anytime you can take a human being and do something to them to change their humanness, like the shape of them being a person, yeah. uh, the reptile totally changes the head and it's great. So. Yeah. And I'm, I'm still kicking myself for not picking up the Mego figure because they did a line oh, of hammer stuff and yeah. the reptile one was fantastic and I passed on it and now I wish I hadn't. I don't know what to say there because I've been slowly getting rid of a lot of my stuff just to make room for a new stuff. But yeah, yeah. I, I've been trying <laughs> I'd to have adopt, a hard time getting rid of it if I had that. So. I've been trying to adopt kind of a, not exactly, but getting closer to a one in one out kind of thing. So I'm not hoarding. Oh, okay. quite, so I'll, I'll try to sell something on eBay if I want a new piece kind of thing. So I'm not, cause I'm completely out of room, but that has not stopped me from <laughs> buying more stuff. So yeah. All right, card number two. What is your favorite classic monster movie sequel? Favorite classic monster movie sequel. I think that's going to have to be Son of Frankenstein. That's my favorite Frankenstein movie. Um, I have to, actually, I think I might have gotten this question the last time, too, because I remember talking I was about Son say, of Frankenstein. And yeah, I, I love that yeah. one. It's my favorite Bela performance. And yeah, it's fantastic. <laughs> Years ago, in the barony of Frankenstein, a monster created by man stalked through the country, maiming and killing. In time, Frankenstein, maker of the monster, died. The monster disappeared. Now, after 20 years, the son of Frankenstein returns, and fear grips the village anew. A man tainted by the blood of his father can forget his human soul and carry on the diabolical work of the Frankenstein. As a man, I should destroy him. But as a scientist, I should do everything in my power to bring him back to conscious life. Benson, turn on the generator. Produced on a vast scale, Universal Son of Frankenstein presents the most fearsome cast in the history of the screen. 
Basil Rathbone. In his heart, warm human emotions. In his mind, the monster mania. It's alive. Alive, you mean? Yes, alive, but alive. I thought you said our experiments I know, were... I know. I do thought we failed, but we haven't. I've actually seen it walk. Karloff, rising from the past to spread new terror. Lugosi, sinister, mysterious, evil. You see that? They hanged me once. Lionel Atwill, grim hatred in his blood. One doesn't easily forget, Herr Baron. An arm torn out of the roots. Josephine Hutchinson, her young beauty a magnet to the menace around her. I hate it here, Wolf. I'm terribly afraid all the time. By heaven, I think you're a worse fiend than your father. Where is this monster? Where is he? I'll stay by your side until you confess. And if you don't, I'll feed you to the villagers. Card number three. What two 1950s monster movies would make a great double feature? Oh, boy. 1950s monster movies double feature. Well, I... Geez. I want to take the easy way out and say that since we're talking about kaiju movies... The natural pairing would be the beast from 20,000 Fathoms and the movie that it inspired, the original Godzilla. I would love I to see that. Has that answer ever been given? I don't know if that has, because that, that does seem like a natural fit. Yeah. Man, what I would give to see a 35-millimeter film-projected double feature of that. Even at like at a drive-in, yeah. maybe. That, oh, that would be so cool. Oh, man. Now I'm making yes. myself want things I can't have. <laughs> oh, well, see, eventually, we just need to figure out a way to own our own drive-in. It's a thing. And show whatever we want, right? That's 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 Absolutely. an attainable goal, isn't it? That's the dream. I was actually uh, trying to... I used to work at a record store, and I was... My boss was a big film fan as well, and he and I had talked pretty seriously to the point of approaching the property owners of taking over a movie theater that was here in town. And I, you know, he would be the money guy, obviously, because I was like in my twenties at the time. And not that I have any more money now than I did then, but, uh, and then I was going to manage it and program it for him. And, uh, but unfortunately we got shut down. So Never even got that one off the ground, oh, but we were, we were, man, really going to try to do it. And it would have been fun I had, cause it was a five screen theater in the mall. So we had this idea, oh. we have all these screens to play with. So one screen can play newer movies and then you got a screen sure. to like, you know, Sunday afternoon, you got old Westerns, like a John Wayne double feature or something for the people who remember doing that in, in their early days and oh and, and, dude, and one, that's, that's one, gold. one screen doing a sci-fi double feature you know earth versus the flying saucers or you know or some harryhausen movie something like that one screen playing uh older disney films like lion king and snow white and thing you yeah. know something you can yeah. bring the kids and let them run around in the theater friday night midnight exploitation double features you know and just doing all this kind of cool stuff but yeah, maybe someday. <laughs> I used to joke, and I don't know how serious I am about it anymore, but I used to joke that my perfect re retirement job would be to own a drive-in movie theater. Yeah. And during during the non-operational months, because, you know, wherever I live, it's going to... I'm Pacific Northwest. It's, it rains all the time, and, and 
occasional snow. So sure. during the non-operational months, you have a part of the property that is set up as like a drive-in museum so that it becomes mm -hmm. uh, an educational thing with all the tax write-offs that come involved, <laughs> come with that, <laughs> nice. to help support the drive-in when it's in operation because yeah. I'm not going to make any money doing a drive-in. I'm going to show the movies that I want to show. I don't, you know, whatever. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and I know it's a niche audience, so he set up the museum part of it for the, uh, yeah. Anyway. That's why you get the oh, multiple man, screens. So cool. You get multiple screens, right, then, you then you can play one. There's a drive-in not too far from my, about two hours away from where I live. It's it's a double screener, so they and you know one screen on each side of the lot, so you sit facing away from one or the other. Um, so you use one screen to play the classic monster stuff, and then you use one screen to play the more uh, profitable, you know, the stuff that's going to put the cars in the lot kind of thing. So then you can do both. Exactly. Exactly. All right. Well, card number four uh, from the Kaiju deck. Just. Kind of randomly, they're all shuffled, shuffled together today. Rodan or Mothra? Hmm. Are we asking about the movie or the monster? Um. You know, when I wrote the question, <laughs> I don't know. Because of how the card is formatted, I'm thinking I was asking just about the monster. But you can take it however you want. Well, I'm going to have to say if it's the monster, Rodan. And if it's the movie, Mothra. I, I love the original 1956 Rodan design. And I don't think they ever got him quite right again until 2019, Godzilla King of the Monsters, that design of him was, oh, oh, was wow. primo. But I, I'm not a big fan of the 65 one. I don't like the Heisei one at all. And uh, the Final Wars one is just eh, kind of okay, but that 56 one is perfection. Really, there's only one other flying kaiju that I like more, which we'll be talking about very soon here. Um, but as far as the movie goes, Mothra is just such a beautiful... Uh -huh fairy tale film it's it's, it really it's much more fantasy than science fiction but it's yeah it's just gorgeous i've been trying to and she's been very receptive trying to introduce my girlfriend to a lot of these classic monster films that are important to me you know i've i've since shown her mm -hmm. creature from the black lagoon more than once uh you know and and, and she's still with me so winner um uh, yeah I've been wondering which kaiju film am I going to introduce her to? She knows that I love Ultraman, so I've been thinking which Ultraman. But as we're sitting here talking, Mothra might be the one. Mothra might be the one to kind of bring her into that magical world because she loves fantasy. Yeah. She loves yeah, fairy tales. She loves all that stuff. So Mothra might be it. Yeah. I think there's your gateway right there. Yeah. I mean, I did show her the MST3K Gamera song clip on YouTube, so I mean, there's that too. So, so she knows that Gamera is full of meat, and <laughs> Gamera is really neat. Um, <laughs> but we're getting close and close, uh, closer to talking to Gamera than I'd like right now because we have one more question to do. Okay, one more card. Favorite horror host? Oh, I, I oh, hate boy. it when this question comes up because I'm inevitably asked to answer and I can't answer that because I love so many of them and I'm friends with so many of them. I don't want to pick a favorite. Yeah. yeah and I, but I'm not going to honor that for you, buddy. You got to pick one. My area. <laughs> no, I know. Yeah. Neither well, did I. I don't have so, yeah. that much experience with them. Cause like I said, I didn't have one here. So the ones now, I mean, I guess I, I'm going to give a two, two part answer. So favorite horror host, Joe Bob Briggs. He oh, there you is, go. Okay. 
he's, he's an awesome guy. I've got to meet him once and I'm going to see him again in October on my birthday, which is very cool. My girlfriend, Terry got his oh, how cool to is that? on my birthday. Yeah. Um, and nice. Uh, I, you know, I stepped, found out about him on TNT with monster vision. So I wasn't there for the earlier stuff, the, the newspaper column and the, the movie channel things. We didn't have cable growing up, but, um, we got a satellite dish, we had TNT, watched monster vision. And he is most of the reason I write about movies now. Like he was kind of DVD special features before there was such a thing. Um, because his hosting style was so informative and it, made me realize there was so much more behind these movies than you'd think of just watching them on your own. You know, he'd tell you the history and about the people who made them. And that's what really made me interested in being a, I don't maybe calling myself a film historian is a little grandiose, but uh, you know, I'm certainly not a critic. I just write about the, the, the informative side of it, you know, but, uh, that's, yeah, so Joe Bob Briggs, he's he was my introduction to the world of studying exploitation movies as opposed to just watching them. And uh, and I'm going to have to give a shout out now to, like I said, I didn't grow up with a horror host, but growing up on our public television station, they showed on Friday nights Doctor Who, which is how I got to, to love that so much. Um, and that was hosted by a local professor from a community college named Mike Frisbee. And he would perform kind of the same function where he was sitting in a lotus position, floating around against this weird digital, like very primitive digital backdrop, because this was, you know, back in the 80s. So it just looked like a Windows screensaver or something like that. Um, and he would t give information about the episodes of Doctor Who and talk about the actors and stuff. In fact, that was how I found out that John Pertwee had died. I still distinctly remember that night when, when I sat down to watch Doctor Who all excited and he comes on looking all somber and usually he was pretty jovial and cheerful and so I have some bad news. I sad to report that John Pertwee has passed and I remember that being the first celebrity death that really kind of punched me in the gut uh, being oh, so close no, to home. Dude. So, But yeah, so Mike Frisbee on uh, Iowa Public Television hosting Doctor Who, that was awesome. Wow. Um, I don't know anything about, well, Doctor Who or, or, or Mike Frisbee, but that sounds amazing. Yeah, well, um, I, I don't think any, anyone outside of Northern Iowa probably knows anything about Mike Frisbee. In fact, I, uh, a friend of mine used to work with his nephew. And I remember talking oh, cool one time, oh, man, man, your uncle was so cool. He was such a big part of my childhood. His nephew had no idea that he'd done that. <laughs> course this kid is like 20 years younger than me and didn't care about sci-fi stuff either but so and nobody's yeah. perfect yeah <laughs> <laughs> wow very cool well that was a round of the classic five and you survived so good job i guess no <laughs> you get to be a monster kid radio so there you go there, there's your your prize for winning yeah, I did well enough. I didn't get kicked out right after it. There you go. No, I I love the Classic Five. I, I don't give it the highlight that I used to, but I still love it. And uh, I really do need to make a concerted effort of, of getting the next round of questions and cards available to people. So listeners, hold me to that, would you? I, I think I need the extra foot to the fire 
ness to it. So, uh, but yeah, that was fun. Thank you for playing around with the Classic Five. Let's dive into talking about Gamera, which I think you were about to tell me is one of your favorite flying kaiju. And well, his opponent. <laughs> that's that's oh, what I was referring okay. to. Gamera there versus. There we go. There yeah. we go. Gamera right, versus the movie Gauss. Is the third. Yes, it's the third Gamera film. Gamera versus Gauss released in the states with a really weird title, but you know whatever. Gamera versus Gauss is the film we're talking about this week, and I actually watched the Japanese language version of it uh, last night to get ready for this conversation. Uh, it has been released, I believe, twice in various dubbed forms uh, over the years, but I did the Japanese subtitled version. How did you watch the film this time? I also watched the subtitle version. I grew up with the Sandy, Sandy Frank version. The original, as you were alluding to, there were two different dubs. Uh, back when AIP was importing tons of, of uh, foreign movies, Japanese monster movies, Italian Hercules movies, all kinds of things to put on television. Because this movie debuted on television over here. It was never in the theater. AIP commissioned all their dubs to you know, in-house there, a lot of studios did international language versions where they would have usually in, uh, an outfit in Hong Kong that had English speaking, mm -hmm. uh, employees would, would do them. And a, a lot of the times they weren't very good. <laughs> so AIP would get Tetra studios to do them. So you have all these great voice actors like Paul Freeze doing these, these amazing dubs, uh, and the, the whole copyright thing. And I know you're a big copyright geek too is is very weird with it where due to various circumstances the movies wound up in public domain but the dubs were still owned by AIP I believe is how it went which is also why when that Criterion Godzilla box set came out and everyone was complaining that it didn't have the dubs it's because the rights to all the different dubs were scattered hither and yon and Toho is allergic to they don't like to be sued themselves they love suing everybody else <laughs> but um <laughs> they they didn't know who to get the rights from for the dubs even though most of them probably aren't you know no one would care anymore anyway but so that's why there are so many movies that are only subtitled on the godzilla criterion box set is because the the dub rights issue was, was kind of a nightmare so when the home video market came up in the states AIP didn't exist anymore and these movies were up for grabs but no one knew what to do with these dub versions so when Sandy Frank came in and bought these movies the the distribution rights to put them on VHS he had his own dubs done and that's how most people of our generations got to know the Gamera movies is through the Sandy Frank dubs my original exposure and I believe they used the Sandy Frank dubs was MST3K yep in fact, when they uh, did uh, Mighty Jack, they even made up a song about <laughs> Sandy Frank. <laughs> That's right. Oh, I've forgotten about that. <sighs> and I've recently talked a, a little bit more about my thoughts about MST3K on the show, and it's it's constantly going back and forth when it comes to mystery science theater. You know, is is it disrespectful? Is yeah. it okay? Do people enjoy it? Does it, in, you know? create an atmosphere of just derision. I I don't know what the answer is, and I will someday have that big Monster Kid Radio Mystery Science Theater roundtable. 
uh, someday. Yeah. Well, that, that's kind show. of what got us. That's kind of what got us talking about that in the first place. Is I messaged you saying, "Hey, yeah. I'd love to be part of that as as a member of the defense." For <laughs> and I know that, and, and I've talked to people like you, uh, Scott Morris in particular has has really. He and I have talked a lot about MST3K over the years privately because mm-hmm. I know he is a huge fan. Um, so people like Scott who love this stuff their exposure to a lot of these classic sci-fi films came from Mm -hmm. MST3K and turned him into the monster kid that he is now. So I know it can be used for good. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and and a lot Um, of the things like the choices of movies that you were talking about uh, on a previous episode where, especially when they got to the sci-fi channel years and when they did the movie that they were using these great universal things, that wasn't their choice. That was a studio mandate. They didn't want to do this Island Earth either. Universal Studios said, we own this movie here. Make fun of this one. And they all went, but this yeah. is good. And then the studio said, well, you do this or you don't get to do a movie. So, you know, they kind of had a gun to their yeah. head. But Yeah, and I and I don't blame them for that. I, I don't blame the people that are involved you know, for it at all. You know, everybody's got to get work. You know, mm-hmm. got to get paid doing what they do. And, you know, if I was given a paycheck and said, okay, sit down and riff on this movie... I would have a hard time saying no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so well, I get it. I get it. And at their best, they like, especially during the Joel era, it got a little meaner when Mike became the, the host, but at their best, they punch up, you know, a lot of the, if you, if you listen to, and they, they do get into Good point. jiving on the movies a little bit. In fact, they do it some in the Gamera ones um, where they'll say, Oh, that's a toy or whatever. But for the most part, the riffs aren't mocking the movie. They're either making a reference like, Oh, this person looks like this other character, or it's, it's another way to engage with the material and they're not necessarily tearing it down. It's just an added layer of communication with the movie. Um, I have a buddy who could explain this better than me because he's a PhD and he wrote his thesis on riffing. (laughs) So but uh, I've, How cool I, is that? I, I've learned a lot about it from, from him too. So That's a really good point. Punching up as opposed to punching down. You're right. You're right. Uh, but this isn't the MST3K panel. Someday no. that'll happen. Someday. <laughs> yeah. You know, in fact, maybe I'll pitch it as a uh, panel at a future convention or something to get myself invited to. We'll see. We'll see. We'll talk about that later someday. What was your first exposure? Was it through something like that? Or was it through the television? Uh, it- no, it was also through the Sandy Frank dubs, but um, do you do you remember KB Toys, the toy store? Do they have those? Yep. Okay. Well, one we had one in our mall here in, in Mason City, and one day the store had sprouted this giant cardboard tub out front full of VHS tapes, and most of them oh. were the Sandy Frank Gamera dubs. And I don't know if you've seen the VHS covers of these old ones or if you had any when you were younger. But they had. I didn't know. I don't. I don't know if they were painted or if they were photos that had some kind of effect on them. But they looked painted. Um, these really cool, colorful, lively covers with all these exciting taglines, very wrestling tagline type things on them. And so, of course, I was. I don't know, five or six years old, probably maybe seven. Uh, when when I saw this, so as a little kid, you see this bin full of super colorful monster movie tapes, and I just lost my mind. So yeah, I, I got a bunch of those. And in fact, I don't think this was my first one. I think my first one was Gamera versus Zegra, but Gamera versus Gauss was probably second. 
Very cool. Uh, this is the third film in the series, that all said. And I was pleasantly surprised. I, I've watched all the Gamera films since I decided I love kaiju movies, which I've talked about in the show as well. My, my journey with kaiju and not really growing up with them and, and not really becoming a fan until after I started Monster Kid Radio, really. Uh, so I'd seen them all since. So I sat down to watch this this time around, and I was quite taken by how much depth there is really to this story. I think when you think about Gamera, at least surface level, it's like Godzilla, but for even younger kids. You know, it, it's got mm -hmm. this kind of kitty fair kind of uh, scent or, or, or stink, I guess, for lack of a better term. This one actually has some pretty cool, interesting things happening. And as I get older and I revisit some of these movies, I, I find myself really drawn toward the monster movies that have a little bit more going for them other than here's a monster. Look how cool the monster is. Now, that's important. Don't get me wrong. But this has got this whole villagers trying to keep their home from being overrun by a construction company that wants to run a freeway through them. Oh, wait a minute. It's not because they want to save their home. Really, the villagers just want more money. So there's this kind of really interesting story happening here. And, and it's a story about making more money in a country that we don't necessarily associate with a lot of you know, rampant, greedy capitalism, uh, you know, the way that you do about, like, say, American uh, exploitation or monster. It's just really interesting stuff. Yeah, you've got the kid running around and Godzilla saves, or I'm sorry, not Godzilla, and Gamera saves a child. Sure, you've got the Timmy factor, I suppose, even though he's not named Timmy. But there's still so much more to it than that. And I was really taken by that this time around. Yeah, yeah, and there's, that is... um the movie's a little bit propaganda-y in that way because there's mm -hmm. a lot of, you know, everyone, when they think about kaiju movies having a meaning, of course, goes back to the original Godzilla, and naturally so. But most of them have a little more material from the cultural zeitgeist than do American monster movies. Of course, we had all the atomic bug movies and stuff, but most of them were radiation is cool right guys <laughs> because of course we yeah. were the ones with the bomb so we were promoting that but so in um toyota and nissan i, I promise this is going somewhere it's not going to turn into the car podcast <laughs> i had Good, started because uh yeah <laughs> had started manufacturing um newer smaller more affordable cars in the 1950s uh -huh. and they kind of changed the way Japanese people viewed travel. Suddenly it was affordable for people to go more than a couple of miles away from their homes, right? Um, and other companies followed suit and suddenly everyone had access to these cars, but only about half the roads in the country were paved in in the mid-50s. Uh, so in, or in early 50s, excuse me. So in 1952, something was passed called the Act on Special Measures Concerning Road Construction and Improvement. It's a very long title basically saying, we're going to make your roads better and we're going to pay for it with tolls. Um, and so it allowed municipal agencies to borrow enough money to start creating new freeways. And the idea was that once the roads were done, they would put these toll stations up and they would pay back the loans. Well, a lot of them were still under construction when the movie came out and the debt wasn't even paid off until 1990. So the, the road construction thing was a big national concern at the time. This was going on all over the country. So that's where the road construction thing comes from. It wasn't just a, oh, we need a random reason for there to be people out in these woods and confront the monster that 
that was how that came up. And the whole thing about the farmers being greedy, that's the part that's kind of a little bit of propaganda. So another big current event going on at the time of the movie would be going or going into production um, in 1966 was the construction of Narita Airport. Okay. The plan was made public in 66 and it was immediately met with resistance. The government planned to eminent domain a bunch of farmers off their land. Now, some of these mm. farmers, some of the land had been given to their families in recognition of their service in the war. So it was, Oh no, you know, here's this land. Thank you so much for your service. And then 20 years, 15 years later, Oh, by the way, we're going to take it all back and bulldoze it under to make this airport. Um, and so there were a bunch of leftist movements that also opposed it because they saw it as opening the country up to more capitalism. So you've got these groups of student activists and these farmers who were getting kicked off their land teaming up together. Um, there was a group called the Sanrizuka Shibayama Union to oppose the airport. Um, there were several other groups, one called the Zengakuren. Um, actually, the, the union to oppose the airport uh, was still active even up till 1983. And the Zengakuren, I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, and I apologize for anyone listening who can speak Japanese properly. Um, that had been around since the 40s. So they came to help the farmers fight for their land. They were setting up roadblocks. They even built catapults to shoot firebombs at the police who were trying to break their <laughs> wow. union lines. Uh, in fact, three police died during the eminent domain process as a result of these conflicts. Oh, my goodness. So for better or for worse, the airport won. Uh, the farmers did all lose their homes, and nobody was eaten by a 200-foot-tall bat. <laughs> but, so yeah, that that was... <laughs> So there's all this cultural and political stuff that, you know, that going on back in the, the 60s that an American audience seeing it in the 80s, the 90s, the 2000s, you know, we're not going to be aware of. But, you know, and you, it's this is what I was talking about with Joe Bob uh, inspiring me to want to look deeper into the behind the scenes stuff and what's going on and what informs these movies, because you find all this stuff out. And like you said, suddenly this children's movie has so much more depth to it. This is one of the things that I love about not just monster movies in general, but classic cinema. Growing up, I wasn't like, oh, I like history. I like learning. You know, you're a kid. You don't care about this stuff. Or, or maybe you do. I don't know. I didn't. But yeah. as I've gotten older, I get more and more interested in history and why things happen the way that they did and the historical, sociological stuff going on and, and, and all that. And this is one of the things that I love about classic monster movies and just classic cinema in general is that, yes, it's a story. Yes, it's a monster movie. Yes, it's a fun romp, whatever. But it's also like this weird kind of documentary where you can kind of see what was going on in the area, what was important, the social norms, the mores, the controversies, the history. I love learning about that. And I had no idea about this whole history of what you were just discussing. It really paints this film in a, a, a different light for me or presents this in a different way to me. Because again, I went into it thinking, all right, we're going to watch camera. He's going to save a kid somewhere and some monsters are going to fight. It is so much more than that. And even just hearing this makes me respect this movie even more. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, Noriaki Iwasa, who is the director of all of the Showa Gammers, except for Baragon, um, he did want these to be children's movies first and foremost. But you know, the sure, obviously, when a when a uh, current event is something as big as 
what we were just talking about is happening, it's it's going to inform a lot of the the art of the time, even if you know decades later it, it's not something people really think about anymore. But uh, but Noriaki Iwasa still like he was a a big kid at heart. Um, mm-hmm. I would imagine Kylie Out probably told the story of him and his son Tiger meeting Noriaki at G Fest the first year they went when Tiger was a, a just a baby and he was in a gear on costume crawling around on the floor in the costume parade and Yuasa got down on the floor and crawled around with him pretending to be Gamera because <laughs> he was just that kind of guy <laughs> and so that you know these movies definitely do have it's weird they have a lighter children's feel like, and yet they're so much more violent than the Guts Hill movies too because both monsters oh, bleed boy. copiously in this movie <laughs> that was one of the things that I didn't remember when I sat down to watch this is that just how gruesome this gets for the kind of movie you think you're about to watch because there is people are getting eaten um characters that you think might be a main character or a hero type nope they get off pretty easily gamera almost gets his hand cut off and it's not just a you know boom we're gonna fight and we have this one wound it's an over and over and over again close up zoom in show that he's bleeding a lot it's pretty intense yeah and that Towards the end, he bites into Gauss's neck and blood starts squirting out of his ear. That's <laughs> so gross. That's crazy. Crazy. But, uh, I feel like I just cut you off, though. You were about to say something. Uh, I, oh, I was going to say, for, for anyone who hasn't seen this or is, or is unfamiliar with it, I, we kind of dove into the backstory without saying much about uh, the movie up front. There's a, a road yeah. construction crew wanting to come through and take a bunch of these farmers land and there's earthquakes in the area. Mount Fuji has erupted drawing Gamera back to Japan because he likes to eat flames and, and bathe in lava. And, um, <laughs> and the earthquakes near the road construction area unleash this giant vampire bat creature named Gauss who tries to eat this little kid and Gamera comes to his rescue. And then throughout the movie, they discovered that Gauss's weakness is he can't turn his head <laughs> which they do come up with a pretty good reason for because he's got yeah. essentially a tuning fork in his throat that produces his sonic cutting ray so they come up with this really cool plan to make him dizzy until Gamera can finish him off so they build this big well they don't build the tower it's a it's a hotel with a revolving restaurant on the top and they put a big tank of fake blood because obviously Gauss likes to eat people on top of the hotel and draw him to it. And while he's sitting there drinking, they turn on the revolving restaurant thing and spin him around until he can't see straight. And then Gamera drags him into a volcano. (laughs) You know, that's the movie. Um, There's some hijinks with a couple of the construction workers. There's a couple of, of guys that felt like, one half of a Jerry and Martin knockoff and one half of an Abbott and Costello knockoff mixed together. Uh, so there's a little bit of that, not a lot, but there's, there's enough that like, they're the only two construction workers that stick around, mm-hmm. uh, whether it's their choice or not. They're, <laughs> they're there. Uh, you've got this little kid that he names Gauss. He comes up with the name. Uh, in fact, they're having this meeting. Uh, you talked about the, the presentation they show, uh, how Gauss works and his 
his uh, internal structure, his biology, which I thought was kind of cool to see. But that whole meeting practically starts with the kid at the top of the, the front of the table, you know, kind of <laughs> explaining what's going on. And the scientists are all paying very close attention and listening and pay, and making sure they, they understand what this kid is saying. And it's kind of cool, you know, and I can see as a kid feeling like, all right, this movie's including me on the same level as it would a grown up. And I thought that that was a neat little touch too. Yeah. Oh, and that, that is totally intentional. Uh, Noriaki Iwasa hated scenes of scientists and military people discussing monsters in these movies because he referred to them as the grown up scenes. And he knew all the kids were bored and running around the theater yelling or buying snacks in the lobby or whatever uh, during those, which is why Gamma versus Baragon, which eliminated the kiddie movie factor, didn't do so well in the box office. So when that one failed, they brought Yuasa back and were like, okay, just do your thing. And he felt that giant monsters aren't logical. You shouldn't expect logic in the movies. So we don't want all these scientists explaining everything. He wanted the children in the audience to join the characters and thinking up solutions. And cause he knew, you know, kids kind of think of adults as clueless liars, which we are in large part. Um, and so he wanted the kids to, <laughs> the kids to be the ones to come up with the solutions. Although there is an interesting thing. And in, I noticed this time and I'd never noticed it before when Dr. Aoki is pointing out the, the tuning fork thing in the, in the artist rendering of Gauss. Down at the bottom, there's a there's a little bit of writing that says Ramphorhynchoidea monster supposed image by Dr. Aoki, which kind of suggests that Gauss might have been a pterosaur like Rodan at some point in the writing stage. Okay. I never noticed this, but I just happened to see it. It's like, oh, there's some writing down there. I wonder if I can see it. And, you know, blurry old VHS tape I watched when I was a kid. You'd never be able to <laughs> pick that oh, out. Oh, no, not at all. But yeah. these wonderful new aero video high def transfers, it's clear as day. So I was looking at that thinking, well, Gauss is obviously a bat. He's not a Ramphorhynchus, but maybe that was the idea at one point. Although I've, I've heard from multiple different places that this was kind of a response to Toho's Frankenstein movie. Daae thought, well, they did really well Ooh. with their taking a Western classic horror monster and turning him into a kaiju. So this is kind of Dracula with the serial number filed off. You know, I had read a couple of places. I did a little bit of prep work for our conversation, and I guess it never really occurred to me, yeah, it drinks blood, but I guess it never really occurred to me, Dracula, vampire. You know, yeah, it looks like a bat, and maybe I was being dense, but it's a bat, it drinks blood. So, yeah, I could see vampire bat there, but I, I guess I never really thought about that. But that makes sense. When did Frankenstein Conquest the World come out? 65 or 66. I think it was 65. Okay. And this came out in 67. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that kind of makes sense. Interesting. And I can see it for sure. Uh, I do think it's a cool villain, a cool monster, you know, monster for Gamera to fight. Uh, you'd said earlier, it's the only one that comes back. Right, it's the only one that we see more of yeah. in various iterations of the film. We don't really see a lot of the other Gamera foes turn back up, and it, it's an iconic, striking-looking beast. I love that they come up with a reason why it has no neck. 
Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and I don't know what came first, the decision to not give it a neck or they built it, realized they didn't have a neck. It's like, uh, how do we justify that? Either way, it works. Well, many of the suits were pretty stiff and couldn't turn their neck. So I think it might have just been a way to explain <laughs> that and give them a reason to do the cool spinning blood hotel thing. But yeah, the suits were just kind of like... <laughs> spinning blood hotel thing. There we go. I like <laughs> That's my new uh, goth rock band. LP coming say, Spinning blood hotel sounds like a great you know, band title. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, the suits were just really <laughs> stiff. So I, I would imagine it was explaining that away there. I do love, though, kind of going back to Yuasa saying that you shouldn't expect logic from a monster. At one point, somebody's yeah. in that conference, somebody's asking Dr. Aoki, well, what is it? Where did it come from? And he's like, I don't know. Let's just call it a monster and just blows the guy off completely. Like who knows? And who cares? We need to get rid of it. So let's go. You know, you talk about like the kid element too. There are some goofier moments in this. Oh yeah. You know, kid logic, I suppose, you know, the helicopter getting cut in half, but specifically there's a car <laughs> mm -hmm. that's driving and Gauss who can shoot these, these ultrasonic, beams that are strong enough to almost cut off Gamera's hand uh, cuts the vehicle directly into down the middle as it's driving uh, and it's such a clean cut that half the car can still drive away <laughs> and you can see the little I mean, wheel it's kid under. logic right yeah yeah uh, and part of the reason that and that looks so goofy that car was a Toyota Corolla, which had just launched in 1966, and that was the, their flagship car. It was the newest, coolest thing. And that cut-in-half model was a, a display thing. Like, they, I can't remember. It was uh -oh, at, really? at some big car show or something. So it was that was some real product placement right there. <laughs> I can see that. I can see that. And in some of the shots afterwards after the car separates and it's like hey get in this part and we'll drive off you can tell that the <laughs> yeah. one half is, is on a stand you know yeah. it's but yeah who cares it, it's this kid logic that well you know the car still works I, I love it i love it and i think it makes you know for a fun movie this movie despite the blood despite the uh, gruesomeness and spots it's just kind of fun overall i i really enjoyed it there there are other kaiju movies that are more horrific like again the original godzilla or more recently shin godzilla but i think this comes closest mm -hmm. even more so than frankenstein conquers the world to like a gothic kaiju horror it's got it's just a great halloween atmosphere kind of a movie and there were parts of it Ooh. that yeah, yeah. The, the, and so much of it being shot you know, all, all of the creature effects were in the dark and they came up with a good reason for that. Well, shooting in darkness is better for effects because it hides some things that bright lighting would maybe show as being a little deficient. But they, again, right. there's a it's good... It's the equivalent of shooting monsters in rain scenes right. in the 90s. Right, you know? right, it's, it's why Godzilla, why Jurassic Park is all on a rainy night. I had all the issues, yeah. But the good, they came up with a good reason. Well, Gauss is nocturnal, so of course all the monster scenes are going to be at night. But I think most of them are are really good. Like the effects in this movie are great. You talked about before. Gauss is such a cool design. He's my favorite flying kaiju, hands down. The original Gauss. And like you said, he's iconic. He comes back. You see him again in Gamma versus Giron, spray painted silver as Space Gauss. He comes back in the yeah. 90s movies. Um, and unlike the Toho movies, where you had Ishiro Honda 
directing the drama scenes and Eiji Tsuburaya directing the special effects. Most Toho sci-fi movies had two directors, so you had a completely different person to handling the effects. Well, for the Gamera movies, Noriaki Iwasa did both. And I think that is, especially in this movie, really works in, in the film's favor because they blend together a lot better. Um, like Gauss's first appearance is so well done and it's really aided by uh, Naoyuki Abe who played Aichi, the little kid. Um, he really mm -hmm. sells how scared he is when he sees Gauss's head and you don't see him all at once at first. You know, you see him lifted, the, that reporter guy gets lifted up and you see a claw and you see some teeth and then that crevice opens up and you see Gauss just the top of his head bobbing up over it and the little kid gets his foot stuck in a log because, you know, course he does and can't get away and so gauss is coming to menace him and he the kid seems genuinely terrified and having the director be able to direct the kid and know exactly how that effect shot is going to line up to it just makes that blending super effective now even today that reminds me of some very vivid nightmares i used to have uh as a kid of kaiju chasing after me of looming over the house looking in the windows while I tried to hide behind the furniture so they couldn't see me and know I was in there. You know, I, I grew up on a farm. So our house was, you know, way out in the country, surrounded by open fields. And in, in the Midwest, our big natural disaster force of nature kind of thing is tornadoes. So mm -hmm. I'd have these nightmares of seeing a kaiju walking across the field toward the house, this implacable, unstoppable, thing that was coming to get me and that you know of course ties into the fear of the bad weather and the tornadoes and really drives home that the kaiju uh, are forces of nature mm -hmm. and the that green light and the weird noise when gauss is around he almost has like some kind of electromagnetic um force that knocks out small appliances i guess that scene where aichi wakes up after dreaming of gamera healing himself uh, down at the bottom mm -hmm. of the lake and the TV is just on the fritz with that weird green light coming out of it making that strange noise. That was another aspect of, of the whole uh, thunderstorm and tornado thing where it would knock out the TV and it would go all static and the radio would be making weird noises and the sky would turn green or yellow if it was going to hail. And that just all, I don't know, it's a very primal thing for me, I guess, remembering all these things uh from my childhood. And, and so even today there's, there's little bits of this movie. I'm not saying I was hiding behind my chair while watching Gamera versus Gauss last week, but, <laughs> but you know, it can still call up those, those feelings. Well, that's, I think is what makes it such a strong movie. I mean, I think sometimes it's easy and, and maybe you can do it with this one too. I don't know. Put in a Godzilla Gamera film or whatever, and just have it going on in the background and watch the Godzilla scenes and the giant monster scenes. And that's fun, but there's, there's a little bit more going on here. And that's one of the reasons why I really enjoyed this one myself. It gets listed on a lot of lists of, you know, the best camera film, the best camera sequel, that sort of thing. And I, I could see that. Yeah. It's yeah, I, definitely, I think it's probably my favorite. Yeah. Mine too. Yeah. It's kind of the easy popular answer, but it's a good answer. So why not? <laughs> I mean, I, I love the nineties trilogy. Oh, yeah. Uh, and I even feel like there's some throwbacks to this or callbacks to this in the 90s trilogy where Gamera does lose a hand. Spoiler. Um, you know, and I see something like that or think about something like that and think, yeah, I could see maybe that being a reference to what happens to Gamera in this one. And 
it's just pretty darn cool. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the first of the 90s ones, Guardian of the Universe, is almost a remake of this. Yeah. True. And it's true. funny. At one point, they were talking about making another movie that, that fell through because Dia went bankrupt. But it was going to be called Gamma versus Gera Sharp. And it was going to be this big King Cobra type thing, which on the tiny budgets they worked with, it would have been really interesting to see how they could work out an entire marionette snake because you can't really do a snake as a guy in a suit so presumably it would have been a marionette thing like manda in atragon but w with next to no money and that was supposed i remember they had talked about that as being gamera's iconic foe this is going to be our king Ghidra to godzilla and <laughs> i was thinking well you already have that everyone loves gauss that's gamera's iconic foe you don't need another one yeah no you no it, it's gauss gauss is the guy was well, you were mentioning uh the the comic relief guys the abbott costello dudes um yukitaro hotaru who played hachiko the, uh -huh. the skinny one he uh was the inspiration for yukijiro hotaru who played inspector osako in the heisei gamera movies that, like he wanted to be that guy that's that's why he wanted to be in the in the 90s gamera movies and that's who he kind of based his character around is is that acting style and that character huh okay i can see that that works and i don't i didn't write down the other one's name um but it was he had a very tragic history like he killed himself not too long after this movie came out not to bring oh, bring things no. down too far because he, he got typecast and made fun of a whole lot and yeah that's probably why I didn't write it down. I didn't want to dwell on it, but then it popped into my head while I was reading the thing with the other guy. So, yeah, that's too bad. Well, I mean, he gave us this and yeah. it's enjoyable. Uh, I can't think of anything about this movie. Like, there's never a moment where I was like, move on, get to the giant monsters. I want to see more because I was on board, man. Even the stuff where it's just on the little kid. Yeah. It still felt so sincere and, and enjoyable that I never once found myself tempted to reach over and grab the remote and you know fast forward a little bit. I, I think overall it's a really solid movie, uh, and I, I highly recommend it. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, precocious little children are such a uh, a trope in, in, in gamma movies and other sci Japanese sci-fi movies as well. Yeah, I think the kids in the little shorts, and that's another mystery science theater thing. But this kid is a really good actor. He never, I mean, of course, there are scenes where he pitches a fit and, you know, acts like a kid, but it never comes off right. to me as annoying. He's not the obnoxious little Kenny stereotype. Like, I think he's a really good actor. And apparently he looked so much like Noriaki Yuasa that people thought he was his son. He's like, oh, this is nepotism. <laughs> you hired your kid. And Yuasa's like, no, we're just both short and chubby. Leave us alone. It's not that. <laughs> Even moments where the kid is helpless, mm -hmm. he doesn't come across as annoying, which I think is a fine line sometimes with a lot of kid actors and a lot of especially lower budget mm -hmm. movies. Uh, when he's stuck and the reporter who he is guided on the secret trail leaves him, abandons him, and he starts screaming, Mr. Mr. Help me. Or when he gets stuck under the, on the rocks and he just starts screaming for his sister to mm -hmm. help him. It's not annoying. It's like, oh my gosh, it's this kid. Somebody save that kid, you yeah. know? Well, and the scene where he's defending his grandfather, I think that's really touching too, because there's a, a scene yeah. towards the end of the movie where 
you know, the grandfather has been encouraging the farmers to hold out against the government for more money. Because that part of the Japanese eminent domain thing is they have to pay you a fair price for your land. They can't just, it's not quite as brutal as it is in America where they can basically just make you homeless with the click of a pen. Um, and so he's trying to convince yeah. them to hold out for more money. And then they're all mad at him because this monster showed up and ruined their property value. Nobody wants to drive a car through a, a forest where there's a giant bat creature that is going to eat them, right? So suddenly the government's like, yeah, you know what? Your land isn't really worth that anymore. So all the farmers come to grandpa's house to yell at him for making them hold out too long and they've lost everything. And Aichi comes out with an arm full of his toys, model airplanes and coloring books and things, and just screaming, grandpa was just trying to help you, you greedy farmers. He was trying to make things better for everyone. You leave my grandpa alone. And he's throwing all the toys at him. And the sister comes out and grabs him and drags him back inside, kicking and screaming. And the grandfather's kind of, you know, looking apologetic, like, uh oh, I'm really in trouble now. And then all the farmers just kind of quit arguing. And they kind of look at each other sheepishly. And there's one guy who's like, yeah, but you. And then the rest of them just grab him, like, no, dude, just shut it. We need to go. We, we screwed up. <laughs> so it's this sweet moment of this kid defending his grandfather, this real pure reaction to, he doesn't understand all the economic stuff that's going on. He just sees a bunch of men being mean to his granddad who he loves. And it kind of makes all the farmers realize that they're being petty. And mm -hmm. yeah, it's, it's a cool scene. I like it. I'm trying to think of anything else that I want to mention about the movie, but I mean, I think, I think we've covered most of it. Any, any other final points or final words on Gamera before we start wrapping up? Well, uh, yeah, let's see. I've got a few things. We can skip over some of this, but one thing that I figured you'd want to talk about is the music. <laughs> Let it be known listeners. I've been actually making a concerted effort not to geek out about the music too much because, uh, well, I do it a lot uh, and I don't know if people are, uh, tired of no, it or not, no. but, music uh, is always worth geeking out over okay good <laughs> good because I, I do love the music the gamma soundtracks uh, i don't know if there's ever been released uh if there's ever a, a, a definitive there have not uh, so soundtrack albums i know there have been some good godzilla soundtrack albums over the years but camera music is kind of harder to come by isn't yeah it? i mean you could probably find them on youtube or something i haven't really looked but um so Waxwork Records did that amazing Showa-era Godzilla box set last year. Mm -hmm. And they and they've yes. been putting out um, other ones, too, like the King Kong Escapes, War of the Gargantuas. Um, Mondo has been doing some. They're doing uh, Rodan. Matango is coming out. Uh, they just put out Mothra, which is, which is awesome. But yeah, so there's an official Waxwork Records fan group that's moderated by some of the people who work for waxwork and every once in a while they'll say so hey guys what would you like to see uh waxwork records put out next what what should our next release be and i always just answer with that gif of gamera from Giron where he's spinning around the bar doing the because <laughs> it needs to happen and i bet it's not nearly as expensive to license as the godzilla stuff yeah so the composer of this score for this one, which I not mm -hmm. only is my favorite Showa Gamera movie, um, I should have specified, this is my favorite Gamera movie overall. The Heisei trilogy are especially two and three, Gamera versus Legion and Gamera versus Iris. Those are the best mm -hmm. kaiju movies ever made, period. <laughs> End of story. Oh, okay. But as far as Showa movies go, Gauss is tops. And it's also my favorite score. 
Um, and the composer for this one was Tadasha Yamauchi, who only did this and the first Yamura. Um, he didn't do a lot of kaiju stuff, but he had a, a pretty decent career composing for other kinds of films. He was originally going to be a violinist, but his hands were injured. He got conscripted into World War II, as so many did. And his hands were injured. They were ruined, essentially. He couldn't be... I mean, he could still use them, but not to the point of being able to be a concert violinist. So his war experiences, a lot like Ashiro Honda's, made him an ardent pacifist. So he, his whole life, spoke out against war, against violence. He's an awesome guy, both composer and just a uh, person. Um, his older brother uh, was Akira Yamauchi, who played Dr. Yano in Godzilla vs. Hedera. So one day, and uh, Ifukube did not do the score for Godzilla vs. Hedera, but at some point on a, on a train ride or something, he ran into Akira Ifukube and asked the great composer to mentor his little brother. He said, look, I, you know, my brother wanted to be a musician. He can't really do that anymore, but he still wants to write please take him under your wing. And so that, that is what happened. So the composer for Gamma versus Gauss, Tadashi Yamauchi, was mentored by Akira Fukube. And you can really hear that influence in this score, I think. I agree. Uh, it does have a very uh, Toho-ish sound. And uh, I, I enjoy it. I enjoy it a lot. And while you were kind of sharing that with us, I was... Up and around places like soundtrackcollector.com and all that, see if there's ever been a release anywhere in the world for <laughs> some good camera music. And it looks like Takuma Records at one point in the 90s put out a three CD box set, but I don't know how much of that is classic camera versus the Heisei era. Okay. It looks like it might be more Heisei, but um, I would love to get my hands on a collection of the camera film. Uh, scores because it's so good yeah and Kootani's stuff for the heisei movies are, are great too i actually got to see that in concert uh one year at g-fest they they were oh were you there yeah, I, oh. I was there for all three of those concerts and they were amazing yeah so g-fest uh what's the guy's name john santos is that the person who puts that together? john DeSantis, yeah John DeSantis, excuse me. So John DeSantis uh, has spearheaded a few Kickstarter campaigns over the years to uh, put on a concert, uh, just pulling in music from the various kaiju films that he loves and then performs them live at G-Fest. And then eventually a, a CD gets released. And I believe there's some YouTube videos as well uh, out there uh, of this. And it's so cool to see these musics. Uh, to see this music get treated in such a phenomenal, loving way. Yeah, they were. Wild. I don't know much. About, I don't know much about the Japanese film industry or the film machine from the fifties, from the sixties. So I don't know as much about that as I would say, like the American stuff. But I imagine that the music probably wasn't treated as well as. You know, the, the music was treated over here for a lot of these films where a lot of stock music was used and that sort of thing. So that when the Gamera films or the Godzilla films of this era get treated with such respect, I love it. It makes me very happy, and I listen to it whenever yeah. I can. The year that they did the Ko Otani music, Ko was actually there as a guest. Uh, and yes. And apparently after the show, he went up to John DeSantis and said, 
I can't remember if it was for one of the Gamera suites or if it was for the music from uh, GMK, Godzilla, Mothra, King Eater, Giant Monsters, All Out Attack. But for, for one of those, he told John after the show that he thought John's arrangement of the music was better than his own. So he was just over the moon about that. Oh, man. How cool is that, dude? <laughs> just how cool is that? Oh, man. Oh, never been to G-Fest. Someday. Yeah. I, someday. I was so bummed to find out that Mark was there. I had no idea. I would have said hi to him because I was there this year, too. It was great to be back after the, the hiatus. But I, I have a feeling Mark's going to be there again. Oh, good. Well, we'll have to, to we'll have to, I imagine we'll have to meet up next time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I can't imagine Mark's the kind of guy that's going to stay away from G-Fest. Um, <laughs> once you go, you can't. So, and yeah. it's a lot like, you know, you talk about um, Monster Bash. It's the same thing where the first time or two that you go, it's you're there for the dealer room and for the guests and the panels and everything else. And after a while, it's a reunion. It's the one time a year you get to see all your friends uh, in meet space that you otherwise have to just talk to online all the time. Yeah. Someday I'll get back. Yeah. Someday I'll get back to all of it because I miss it. I miss meeting people and hanging out with people and, and that sort of thing. And someday I'll get back. But in the meantime, I'll have to live vicariously through folks like Mark or you or anybody else who goes to these events. Uh, when Mark told me that, it's even though it's called G Fest and it's inspired by Godzilla, that Ultraman gets a good showing at G Fest. I'm imagining Gamera does as well. The year uh, it was 2015 when it was Gamera's anniversary year. They had a little more Gamera stuff there. Most of the time, it's more represented in like the dealer room. You not so much in the guests, but oh, one more fun little bit of trivia: Kojiro Hongo. We didn't talk yes. any about him. He's the the head of the construction company. Uh, he was a literature student. He was a very serious, dramatic actor. And when Daya went all in on Gamera versus Baragon, because the first one, first movie was very successful. So they decided to make a more adult, grown-up Gamera movie. That was the second one. They had no little kid stuff in it. They spent like two or three times as much on that as they did any other movie they'd ever done. And they wanted him because he was an A-list dramatic actor, kind of like when they got Brian Cranston to be in Godzilla 2014 when he was just hot off Breaking Bad. Um and he didn't want to do it. And he had a friend who was a doctor who he basically had his doctor friend write him a note saying he was too sick to come out and play with the monsters. <laughs> and it backfired because the studio <laughs> wanted him so bad. They said, that's fine. We'll hold up production until you're better. <laughs> so he went, oh, crap. I'm stuck <laughs> doing this. A doctor's note to stay out of You'd have to write, oh, man, I want a doctor's note to put me in the monster movies. What are you talking about? Right? Uh, <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> well, our gain, I guess, you know? Yes. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to talk about Gamera with me here. Um, like I said, I always feel a little almost imposter syndrome-y about talking about kaiju films on the show. Because I, I just don't have the experience. I don't have um, the de the depth of knowledge that other people do. So I appreciate you taking the time to, you know, hold my neophyte kaiju <laughs> <laughs> loving hand. Well, hey, I'm, uh, I'm And walk me through here. some of this and stuff. So I'm far from an expert. You know, I have my friend Kyle Bird, who does the Kaiju Transmissions podcast. If he even listens to this, he'll probably 
send me an angry text saying I got a bunch of stuff wrong. So, you know, I'm, I'm no expert either, but I've been a diehard fan of this stuff since I was like four years old and my mom rented Godzilla 1985 for me for the first time. So I'm always happy oh. to talk about Kaiju or any other kind of monster really. Yeah. And that's, that's the thing, right? It's like folks like us, I feel like you don't have the, the hesitation that I do because I love all the other stuff and you love all the other stuff. You're like, yeah, I'm going to guide you. That's just part of it. So you're a more well-rounded monster kid than I am. I guess that's what I'm getting <laughs> at. So, Well, I'm... Uh, oh, man. Good stuff. So what what have you got coming up? Can you talk? You see you've got this article about the blob coming up in Scream Magazine. Yeah, that's the one I'm writing now. I don't know when. Uh, they're, they don't necessarily publish the stuff as they get it. So they push the John Carpenter thing right up to the top because it's John Carpenter and that's going to sell issues, right? But they've had, like that. I mentioned I'd written an article about Blackula. That was like the second thing I ever wrote for them and it still hasn't come out yet. Um, I've, I did this great interview with uh, Nick Maley, the guy who built Yoda for Empire Strikes Back um, and a bunch mm -hmm. of other stuff. I talked to him about his work on Life Force, the Toby Hooper movie. And so I have this, nice. it's like, and it's a massive interview. Like, it's like, almost three times as long as my normal articles because he was very very talkative and it was an awesome interview and they i mean that it'll come out um because that was one of the movies they requested i just don't know when so um so yeah it's it's hard to say when this stuff will come out but uh issue 74 which is out right now um you can order it at screamhorrormag.com or barnes and noble carries scream but it takes a little while because yep. they're published in the UK. So it takes a little while for things to get over here. So you might not see it on the Barnes and Noble shelves until September. Um, but you can get it or, you know, ask your local comic book shop better yet. Forget Barnes and Noble. Scratch the corporate guys. Go talk to your local comic book shop. Tell them to carry Scream Magazine. <laughs> um, there you go. I've, no, it's, you know, you laugh, but seriously, it's important. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, and now back to shilling the corporate stuff. I have an author page on Amazon <laughs> where I've, I've got some short stories out in a couple of anthologies. Um, and then I self-published one that you can read for free if you have Kindle Unlimited. I still get a couple of pennies from Jeff Bezos if you, if you do that. And then uh, the thing I'm almost more excited about than having talked to John Carpenter is I got to do my first bit of voiceover work recently. That's something yeah. I've, I've always dreamed of doing. I've just never really known how to get into it, Ooh. but it's good to have friends in the right places. So my buddy, Andrew has this amazing, if I'm, I'm assuming some of your listeners like me are metalheads. Uh, he has this death metal band called coagulate. They're out of Minneapolis, Minnesota. And the theme of the band is Brian Lumley's necroscope novels, which if you've never okay. read, those are like the best vampire literature ever. They're super creative, super weird, gory, crazy, kind of a mix of like the cosmic horror of H.P. Lovecraft meets the blood and thunder of Robert E. Howard with a healthy dash of like 1970s exploitation movie sleaze. <laughs> it's, it's, um, and, and Lumley obviously is part of the Lovecraft yeah. community. Mm -hmm. I've met the man a couple of times over the years. Oh, wow. And, okay. And chatted with him and he, and he knows his Lovecraft. He's a, you know, whatever, but, uh, yeah, necroscope it's, um, I'm going to say this word and I don't mean it derisively because I know it does have a little bit of weight to it, but it's like a splatter punk vampire story. And it's really good if you're into that kind of thing. So, yeah. so Andrew's band coagulate, all the songs are relating to the lore of necroscope and they released a rehearsal demo, which is basically a, a live 
all at once recording rather than a fully produced studio kind of thing uh, through a label called Sewer Rot Records. And they have a song about a character called Vasagai the Sock. And he had a couple of sections that he wanted some words read and hit me up and said, hey, you have a voice to read horror stuff. Come read this stuff on my song. <laughs> you have a voice. So yeah. Yes, I, I do. Yeah. Uh, you do have a great voice, dude. Well, thank you. So that's awesome. And that being said, if anyone else wants to hire me to read any horror stuff for him, I'm your man. I'm available. <laughs> <laughs> right on. All right. So we'll make sure there's links to Scream Magazine. We'll make sure there's links to your uh, author page on Amazon. Uh, and if there's anything else that you are attached to that has a website, let me know. And I'll make sure there's a link to that as well in the show notes over at monsterkidradio.net. And, uh, of course, follow the affiliate links to order your own copy of this movie, if it's still available. I think it's still in print, uh, over on Amazon as well. And it just scrapes a couple of cents off the top of Jeff Bezos's paycheck and dumps it into my Monster Kid coffers. So, uh, that'll help out as well. Uh, Brian, thank you for doing this. Thank you for I, having me I appreciate me back. you taking the time. Like I said, you know, I, I appreciate people being patient with me when it comes to the kaiju stuff. I've had a lot of talk uh, from people wanting me to do more kaiju on the show. I never feel qualified. So when I've got somebody like Brian on the show, I suddenly feel a little bit more uh, in my element. So thanks for helping me with that. My pleasure. I'm happy to come back anytime. God, and I was just... Very cool, man. I had like a page left of of notes and just little bits of trivia and things like oh we don't need to keep talking about this stuff or we've been over an hour and then i found one that i just remembered like this was something i wanted to make a point to put in because it's such a good story but we okay. get to uh, no that's cool that's cool no 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 i'll i, I haven't hit i haven't stopped yet editing oh, dude oh yeah okay so the production budget for the effects was around $160,000. That's not counting the actors salaries the promotional materials the publicity all that kind of stuff this is just to you know, the practical side of things. Um, there was a studio accountant keeping track of each time they fired Gamera's leg rockets, which cost 12,000, <laughs> it cost 12,000 yen a pop or around $33 American at the time. And Gauss's cutting beam cost like a thousand dollars every time they had to animate it. So they had to be very sure the shots were lined up right and didn't screw anything up. But, uh, a few years ago at G Fest, um, the suit builder, Pezo Mirase, was there and he was primarily mm -hmm. a Toho guy. Mm -hmm. He built King Ghidra, he worked on Mothra, he built the Varan the Unbelievable suit. Um, but oh, I love that. But because Toho was the only studio that had like a kind of in house effects team, others they would kind of farm their work out to other studios sometimes. So when Dia needed a Gamera movie, they didn't have that many people to work on it. So they would get some people from Toho and Keizo Marasu was one of them. And he was telling this amazing story. Later, Gamera films cut the spinning, you know, when Gamera has all four rockets burning and it's twirling like a UFO and just had him fly with his back legs, with his head and front and arms still out. Well, they were probably thrilled to, and that was a budgetary thing because those rocket firing costs so much, but they were probably thrilled to be able to get rid of that spinning effect because this, mm -hmm. my favorite story Marase told was when they would do that spinning thing, you can imagine how complex the system of wires was to make that happen to to be able oh, to, about, to yeah. be able to pilot that shell and move it through the air at the same time and it was quite heavy and those flame jets were really hot and they had a tendency to burn through the piano wire 
and send that shell crashing down into the city set, oh, knocking no. all the buildings over, oh. costing them tons of money and time to have to, you know, stop filming for a day or two to completely rebuild the sets. Oh, no. Oh, oh man. That's something about these movies that I am in awe of. And, and I know when you're hired to work on a movie like this and you're told you're going to build a city, you know that cityscape's going to get destroyed. You just know. So you go into it trying not to have that attachment, but I can't imagine. I can't imagine being hired to work on something like that and you know, spend months building something so that it can be destroyed in 30 seconds on screen. Especially when it's destroyed by accident. Oh, that's the worst. <laughs> Man. Oh. There's a question uh, in the Classic Five about, uh, you know, if you could hang out on set for a day or whatever mm. on a monster movie, what would it be? And uh, just hanging out on a kaiju set before <laughs> Godzilla or Gamera turns up. Mm -hmm. I would love that. I would love to have that experience. Oh, absolutely. Wow. I know we're doing this as an insert, but... Uh, are you aware of any really good uh, resource, uh, like, like books or, or even online resources, that really get into the special effects and the history of that? I know there have been some great Subaraya books over the years, but he didn't work on Gamera. So are you aware of any good places online or even in text for people to go learn more about this stuff? As far as non-Subaraya stuff, there is one. Oh, God. Um I'm trying to remember. I keep seeing ads for it on Amazon, on my Facebook. It pops up. It's called Godfathers of Japanese Special Effects or something like that. Of course, I see it all the time and I keep needing to buy it. And then the one time I need to think of what it's called, I'm totally drawing a blank. But I want to say it's by Otaku Books, something like that. Japanese Special Effects Cinema Godfathers of Tokusatsu? Yes, that's the one. I, I don't okay. have it yet, but it, it's apparently a fairly recent thing. And I, like I said, I see ads for it popping up a lot. And I've heard from some people who have it say, um, not a lot of photographs, oddly, but good information. So I would, without having read it, I guess I recommend that one. <laughs> but yeah, there's not a lot of stuff sure. that covers the, the, um, you know, obviously Subaraya is the, the big one and there's the August Rigoni book, um, but the commentary tracks on the Aero Video Gamera set are amazing. I got a lot of the information that we talked about today from listening to the um, Stuart Galbraith's commentary track. Right on. Return of the Giant Monsters. of the giant monsters.
the giant monsters. Thanks for listening. Thanks for being part of the show. This is, of course, the end of the episode. But Monster Kid Radio doesn't have to end right now because we're all over the internet. Our Facebook page, our Facebook group, our Twitter, our Discord, our Patreon, our Reddit. We're all over the place. Head over to monsterkidradio.net to check out links to all of that if you want to be part of the Monster Kid party between episodes. Or join us on Twitch. Like I said, on Saturday... We show movies all bloody day. On Tuesday, we show movies as well. It's a good time, and it's free. There's a great chat going on. It's the only time I'm going to encourage you to talk during a movie. Other things coming up on Monster Kid Radio. Well, next week, we've got Kaiju Queen. She's going to be joining us here on the show. Kaiju Queen is very involved in the Twitch channel. She's always in the chat, chatting it up with us, having a good time. But we're going to have her on the show proper. We're going to learn about her origin story as a Monster Kid, as well as some local events that she's gone to in her neck of the woods that Monster Kids might be interested in learning about. So we've got that coming up next week. The HP Lovecraft Film Festival is happening next month. And while it's not official yet, as uh, I still need to submit my application... I'm not necessarily a guest, but you know I'm going to try to get to that thing. I'm going to try to be there. We've got PDX Scaregrounds happening all throughout October. It starts at the end of September, actually, which is one of Portland's premier haunted house events. And my girlfriend Beth is one of the managers there. So, uh, so you know, I want to promote that as well. Go to any of these events. Let them know that Monster Kid Radio sent you. And then call in and let us know how it was. I'd love to hear about it. All sorts of cool stuff coming up. I think there's going to be a special announcement about some special episodes of Monster Kid Radio coming up here very soon. Very soon. So stay tuned for that. Best way to stay tuned is to subscribe to the podcast or even subscribe to our YouTube channel because the YouTube channel also has the episodes of Monster Kid Radio. I really want to get this episode out, so I'm going to go ahead and wrap up and just thank you for being here and remind you that Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio, LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0, unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song Savage Season. That is by the band, the Italian surf band, the Bradipos 4. Brada Post 4 can be found on Bandcamp, on the High Tide Recordings Bandcamp page. Go check them out. And like I said earlier, let them know that Monster Kid Radio sent you. My name is Derek M. Cook. I'll talk to everybody next week. Ciao.